0: This is Terms of Reference podcast number 143.
1: No one gives a damn about your objective, well-balanced view. People want to know what your opinion is because that's how people respond. You know, human beings are storytelling species. We want to hear what your experience is. We want to hear why you think the things that you do. By all means, bring a lot of evidence to your argument, but tell me what you believe. (laughs)
0: This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. We've had a lot of change makers on this show over the last two years. People and organizations that are redefining old systems and creating new products and processes that demand completely new ways of thinking about how we serve those in need. Across these interviews, one of the factors critical to the success of any endeavor is the ability to communicate effectively this skill not only entails the ability to bring facts and evidence to the table, but to weave these into a narrative that conveys the why behind what you believe. While I'm fairly certain that most of you would agree that communication is important, it is still something that we don't properly prioritize, even though many times it's the deciding factor for convincing someone to join your cause, retain top talent, or secure funding. And if you think I'm wrong, I challenge you to spend 30 minutes at any event in any major hub of the aid and development sector this week, places like Washington, D.C., New York, Geneva, Bangkok, Nairobi. And tell me if you don't witness rooms full of participants spending more time on their mobile devices than engaged in the presentation and speakers who still haven't incorporated even the most basic presentation and public speaking fundamentals. I invite you to share your stories about this challenge in the comments section on aidprunner.com for this podcast. But here's the good news. My guest for the 143rd Terms of Reference podcast is Angus Harvey. He is the co-founder of a new media company called Future Crunch. Their decidedly optimistic mission seeks to help people understand what's on the frontiers of science and technology and what it means for human progress. You should definitely check out their website, YouTube channel, and get on their newsletter. And I'm absolutely certain you'll love this conversation about new media channels and the evolution of journalism. Fake news, bringing stories of change and progress to the world, and what it means to embrace the hacker culture of today. I spoke with Gus in Melbourne. And now, before we start, here's a brief shout-out from our sponsor. The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com. Hello, Gus. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. its I feel like this is going to be an out-of-the-box conversation for everyone here on the podcast. Where are you sitting today?
1: Uh, well, I'm uh, in my office in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I've got the windows open. It's a beautiful summer's day here, and uh, I'm just watching a few cyclists
0: his past outside. I'm sure all of our colleagues in the northern half of the of the globe... We're going to be jealous that you know it's January twenty third when we're recording this, and you're telling us how warm it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yes, yeah, you are the co-founder of an organization, a small think tank there in Melbourne called Future Crunch. Why don't we? You know, as we always start out, just why don't we? Why don't you tell us about what Future Crunch is? What's its? What's your goal, and what kind of stuff do you do?
1: Future Crunch was something that I started with a, a good friend of mine, Tane Hunter, about two or three years ago. And really, it was a response to something that we saw going on, which was that uh, the stories that we saw in the media and most of mainstream news didn't really match up to a lot of the stuff that we were reading on some of the more obscure corners of the internet and also a lot of the data that was coming in from different places in the world that we were watching. And really, we we thought there was a huge mismatch between the way the world really is and, and the way that it's often portrayed. And so we decided... Tane is a biologist and I'm a political economist and we thought we need to be able to tell better stories about the world and stories that are a little bit more optimistic than what we usually see.
0: So before I ask a more granular question, how do you tell those stories? Are you, you're out there speaking, do you do, I, I know you do some consulting work, like what are the ways that you deliver that message?
1: I guess uh, Tana and I are both millennials, so uh, we are part of what we call the cusp generation. In, wear, in wear that, that way, badge uh,
0: with honor, my friend. Wear that badge with honor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it can be a dirty word, but uh, the way I like it, it, I think the cusp generation is the way I heard it described. It's we're, we're old enough to remember the world before the internet, but we're young enough that it's always kind of, been a big part of our lives and so we thought well why don't we start a a media and consulting organization that tells these stories but uses all the different ways uh, that we have available to us these days to to actually do that so we do public talks um, we have a lot of social media feeds uh, we publish blog posts we've got a little future crunch uh, youtube channel Uh, we don't really care how we get it out there all that matters is that we hit as many people as possible
0: so you are becoming one of those, you know, media outlets that, that you described, right? That, that that have data. Tell us about what's kind of your favorite story to share about one of these these data points where the mainstream media was kind of missing it or getting it wrong or being not granular enough about it that that you you know, that you like to bring to the forefront. Mm, sure.
1: Maybe one way of tackling that is to just talk about two thousand and sixteen in general. It was um, it was a, it was a, it was a
0: year. It was a year, and I love that you have a was, blog post that says uh, yeah. 2016 was a good year, wasn't it? I mean, it, there were a lot of good <laughs> things that happened.
1: Well, I mean, look, I think that's a little bit. We were a bit cheeky, uh, you know. We're, we're guilty of a bit of clickbait there. We, we wrote an article last year called "99 Reasons 2016 Was a Good Year," and and the reason we did that was because the kind of doom and gloom and pessimism that we saw last year was just—I've never seen anything like it in my life. You know, it Lord doesn't matter whether you were. Yeah, you, it doesn't matter whether you were looking at your Facebook feed or whether you were looking you know, at the New York Times or whether you were just kind of talking at the dinner table. Everyone was just so negative about what last year meant and what it meant for the future. And that just was not the story that we saw last year. Because we spend a lot of time monitoring and, and checking out innovative and good news stories, we just saw a totally different year. And um, so we've, we, we've got these 99 good stories and... Um, 2016 was an amazing year for humanity we we pulled off so many great things and we thought we'd, that would be good to publicize
0: what's your favorite good thing that you you know if, <laughs> if we're going to sit here and have a beer what's your favorite good thing from 2016
1: oh well it's lots of places to start maybe the one that matters the most for me is that as of 2016 we are now educating 93 percent of the planet's children literacy levels on the planet are up to nine out of ten children and that's that's up from five out of ten in the 1970s. That is one of the greatest yet most underreported stories of all time.
0: Is there a qualification behind? You know, we're educating them. Is it, I'm just thinking my my cultural group in the United States, right? And you know, there's probably a lot of people beating their chest right now, saying, "Yeah, but it's it's you know it's Common Core curriculum, or you know, but wait, in India, you know, they're just they're they're force feeding them, and it's it's you know, writ memorization. Does there any qualification there?
1: Oh sure, I mean it's uh, this is an aid and development podcast, so there's <laughs> always <a> qualification. <laughs> it's one of our it's one of our
0: biggest downfalls. Let me tell you. Okay, yeah.
1: Well, I think that's really good. You know, it's good to pass the facts and you know have a bit of critical thinking and say, okay, well, what's actually behind that? So. If we break that down, then obviously, you know, we're talking about primary education, we're talking about secondary education. Um, What is the quality of that education? Just because a child sits in the classroom doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting the best education. You know, just because they've uh, got maths as one of their subjects doesn't mean they have math literacy uh, when they qualify. So I think that there's a lot of caveats. The point is, is that, you know, as a global society, the idea that education matters is now deeply embedded across all nations and across almost every kind of political regime as well. And I think that's one of the big success stories that the aid and development community can kind of really look back on and say, well, that's now common practice. And as we sort of go on, as we move forward into the future, we're going to be looking at a planet where every single child on the planet is literate where every single child is receiving some form of schooling, and also a planet where increasingly we're looking at about 10 to 15% of children who then go on to tertiary education as well. Uh, and I think, you know, once you start diving into those facts, it gives you a lot of hope for the future.
0: Mm, I like that a lot. You know, you've purported yourself as, you know, you're looking at the good stories out there, or, or when, when, you, when we started this conversation, you said one of your impetuses for starting Future Crunch was that there's all of these outlets— information out there, is this the end of media? Is this the beginning of media? Is this is this just the the natural evolution of media? Now that you know we're in this uh, accelerated technology boom, I'm grounding my question in you know we have a lot of colleagues in aid and development who are they're focused on communication, right? They're they're focused on how do we tell these stories in a way that's not only compelling but. Effectively engages people, effectively gets them interested, and especially you know people who want to give their money to continue the work. How would you approach being a media outlet if you were one of these aid agencies, or if you were a small NGO?
1: Mm. Oh, I mean, it's it's a it's one of those million dollar questions. I think. So let me preface this by saying I'm completely biased. <laughs> um, you know, thank that's God. A of... Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's there's a lot to that statement.
0: Um, well, and again, I think it's one of the one of the difficulties that we have in our business is that being we have to recognize our bias, right? We have to be able to say, look, yeah. this is a viewpoint, and this is my viewpoint, and this is what i this is what I want to say. So let me
1: answer that question in in three. I've got three sort of different aspects uh, to the answer to that question. The first is that uh, we hear a lot about the death of media and the death of journalism. We've been hearing a lot about that for the last few years. And I always find it very interesting that the people who are writing the articles about the death of journalism tend to be journalists who are losing their jobs from traditional media outlets. Ah. So they're the only voices that we're hearing. But from where I'm standing, you know, for every one media outlet that's seen a drop in viewership, I've seen 10 new kind of new media companies spring up. And some of these media companies are absolutely fantastic. They're, They're small outfits. Some of them are big ones. You know, for example, one of my favorite ones is Quartz, uh, which is the sort of young person's version of the Atlantic, of Atlantic media. Uh, There's another one called Fusion, which I think talks about, um, you know, specifically aimed at millennials. And uh, they're all sort of digital-only platforms. Uh, And then you've got small um, organizations like ourselves. And there are hundreds of thousands of these popping up around the world. And not just, you know, in the UK and the US or in the OECD countries, but we're now seeing sort of citizen journalism. And... Uh, pop-up in India, you know, China obviously has got some big media censorship restrictions, um, but, you know, the news does leak out there, and I just think you know, it's, um, for every one media outlet that dies, we've got ten new forms in their place, and often these ones are digital only, and they've got a different angle in reporting, and I guess that kind of leads me into the second part of the answer, which is that, I think in the aid and development sector, uh, a lot of our training, we receive this training that was supposed to be objective, I did my degree at the London School of Economics. I did a PhD there in political economy. And I remember the one thing that kept on getting drilled into us from the beginning of my university education all the way to the end was that we're supposed to be objective. We're supposed mm-hmm. to look at both sides of the argument. We're supposed to think critically. We're supposed to kind of give a really balanced uh, viewpoint and you know, make sure you reference everything. And what happens there is you... You do all this research and all this work, and then you end up with this really anodyne, boring result because you haven't said anything. You've just said, well, here's what they say, here's what they say. I
0: call call our our particular academic or or culture, whatever you'd say, it's the yes but culture, right? Yeah. It's the yes, this is the answer, but if you look at this angle, but, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: It's always got to be qualified, right? And I think that that's a really good training. What that means is that you know, sources matter and that facts have to actually be facts, they can't be fake news and, and I think that's really good stuff to, to bring into your practice. But but once you're out there, no one gives a damn about your objective, well balanced view. People want to know what your opinion is because that's how people respond. You know, human beings are storytelling species. We wanna hear what your experience is, we wanna hear why you think the thing is that you do. By all means bring a lot of evidence to your argument. But Tell me what you believe. Tell me what you think.
0: I want to take a few seconds and, and let the profound nature of that statement sink in. And, and while I do that, I want to just talk to everybody and say, hey, look, you know, you're, you're about 15 minutes into listening to this. If, if you're finding value in our conversation, if this is something that you want to continue listening to look, we've got a sponsor, but we, we still need your help. We still need your support. And showing that support really does matter. So could you please take a moment to leave us a review, leave the, the podcast review on iTunes, or simply share this episode with your community on Facebook, on Twitter, on, or whatever. And I especially love it when you comment on the blog or you send me an email or you send me a, a message on Facebook, because I get all of them and I answer every single one of them. All it takes is a couple clicks, and it really does help. And if you're really interested in helping to make aid and development and the social impact sector better, sign up for my newsletter and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. So what I'm hearing you, if, if I were to put this into a strategy for, a, let's just say a small NGO, right? Under-resourced, bunch of people who want to do good in the world, but but, you know... Holy smokes, they're all overworked, etc. It's not about figuring out how they contact all these new media outlets or figuring out how they, you know, they have such a huge strategy, as much as it is is being a content developer and getting it out there effectively so that they can pick it up and bring it out to the world. Would I characterize that correctly?
1: Yeah, well, I would say sort of, you know, going even deeper. What you're trying to do here is you're trying to tell a story about the world, and you want to be really explicit about saying the reason I believe the things I believe is is this, you know, this is my background, this is what's happened, this is my experience. And because I believe the things I believe, this is the story that I want to tell. And that story is biased. It's, um, it's not objective. It's totally subjective. And half of the audience that catches that story is going to go, well, I, I don't relate to that. Mm-hmm. But the other half of the audience will go, wow, that's exactly what my experience is. Like, that totally resonates with me and then what happens then is that you know you you might not get the entire room to go hmm that's interesting but you get half of the room to go wow that is absolutely amazing
0: mm. so now we've we've we're, we're standing on the precipice of fake news so, Absolutely. tell me about how you know clearly 2016 has that has been one of the memes that has just been everywhere. It continues to be right. On, on, everybody is accusing each other of fake news now, at least in the United States. Talk to us about that for a second. I'm just not even going to ask a question.
1: So, uh, the problem of fake news. I think the problem of fake news, a few things. I think fake news has been around for a long time, but I think in the age of the internet, obviously misinformation can spread a lot quicker. I think the fake news is actually a symptom of a deeper underlying problem, which is that we tend not to have much empathy for people who have political beliefs that don't match up to our own. Uh, And probably the most useful thing that I learned in 2016 in this area was from a podcast called uh, Stuff You Don't Know. And what they talked about was some research coming out of the University of Minnesota, which showed that when we are trying to have arguments from, say, the left or the right, or what you in the U.S. call liberal versus conservative, we tend to be talking about totally different things. They said the values of liberals, for example, tend to be around equality and justice, which is obviously a lot of the values that people in aid and development have as well. But then if you identify as conservative or right wing, your values tend to be around things like loyalty, patriotism, respect for authority. And so when we are talking about a problem, say, for example, like climate change, you know, those of us who are in the aid and development sector will tend to say something like, uh, you know, we need to tackle climate change because uh, it's not fair that uh, poor people are going to have the sea levels uh, you know rising or that those who are worst affected are the ones who didn't cause the problem. That's not equal. Whereas if you are from a conservative bent, you're saying, well, that doesn't really resonate with my values. But then if you turn around and you say, you know, okay, well, for example, uh, one of the conservative values is purity. They say the more pure something is, the the more Mm -hmm. value that has. So when they start talking about things like purity um, and pollution, you don't even mention the word climate change. You just say, we should have an economy that um, is cleaner, for example, Mm. that tends to resonate a lot more with someone who's got a different political opinion from you. And that's why, for example, clean energy is so popular in the U.S. on both sides of the political aisle. And I think if we, uh, in the aid and development sector, and also people who are sort of interested in justice issues more generally, start to talk about these things in ways that resonate with the other side, with their values, you tend to have a lot
0: more impact. Mm. I was also just, I thought you were going to go down the clean water thing. I think I feel like you could make an argument that, you know, rather than talking about rising seas or those kinds of things, just, say, hey, look, we need clean water. We have polluted water, right? And so that's... Great. Uh, okay, interesting. Yeah. You know, you said you started your organization a couple of years ago. What's the next three or four years look like for you? Are you going to be putting together particular services? Do you have products on the line that, that you guys are thinking about? Is it—is it still are you know, basically just corralling the conversation and putting good information out there what's do you have a strategy for the future <laughs> let me put you I on the spot for your business plan for the next three no, years no, I think
1: what, so we, we have this we have this joke in the office that our that our business plan is one word which is adaptation um, you that's know, great we are we are sort of what we do is we take stories about cutting edge science and technology and then we Communicate those stories in ways that kind of people can really digest, and and what we're looking at there is telling stories about the way the world is changing for the better. So one of our favorite channels for that is our newsletter. We've got about uh, five thousand subscribers on that. It comes out once a fortnight, and what we do in that newsletter is we have a few thoughts about how some of these things are going up, but we always include seven or eight good news stories from around the world that people just didn't hear about, mm. and those are kind of those are serious good news stories. You know, we're not talking about a grandma, you know, donating her life savings to charity or a cat being rescued from a tree, although, of course, those are great things. (laughs) Yes. You know, we we want to talk about big stuff. So in our last newsletter, for example, we talked about how Mexico has just set aside 5.7 million hectares for marine conservation. We talked about how cancer death rates in the United States have dropped by 25%, saving 2.1 million people in the last 25 years. We talked about how... China um, has just decided that it's going to set aside $300 billion for investment into renewable energy. Uh, and then we talked about um, how India is sort of following suit as well. And then the final story, one of the other stories put in there was that 1.3 million people in Kenya have gained access to electricity in the last year or two. Wow. I mean, those are, those are amazing stories. Like, wow, you know. But then why didn't we hear about them? Why, why weren't they in the mainstream press? Mm. So we figured, all right, well, we'll send it out to these 5,000 people, and they're going to get the news you didn't hear about. So that's the newsletter, and then uh, we've got a little uh, YouTube channel which we started up called Future Crunch TV, uh, which is totally fly by the seat of our pants because we don't know how to do television, but we're learning as we go. Uh, and then our main stock in trade is is really public talks, where Tane and I, you know, I'm an economist, he's a biologist. We stand up there and we kind of do these really entertaining, um, but really kind of fact rich talks where we talk about how these changes are happening and then we talk about new technologies like blockchain or artificial intelligence or drone technology or 3d printing and we talk about how those are making the world a better place
0: so take me to to some of those things like blockchain and drone technologies and 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 whatnot is there something in that you could connect to either you know responding to emergencies you know international humanitarian aid or or the development space that you think these are the disruptors for the next three or four years
1: Oh, sure. Uh, oh, I think that the international development space, the big, you know, one that's been quite popular is drone technology. I think those stories have been heard quite a lot in the aid and development sector, so I probably won't dive too much into them. Maybe what I'll do, though, is just mention one my, my favorite drone story in the aid and development sector.
0: We love drones um, here. Please tell us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this was a, um, a tiny forest community in um, Guyana. Their names were the Wapichan people, small community, 9,000 people. And what they did is they ordered the parts for a drone off Amazon. And then they got it shipped to them in Guyana. And then they went onto YouTube uh, and got the instructional videos for how to actually make this drone. Because one of the things there was that if the drone breaks, you need to be able to replace the parts. So they sort of had things like map sticks replacing it and rubber bands. So it was really, you know, they, they built it themselves. And then they flew the drone over their forest lands to monitor illegal logging. Uh, and once they had the images from a GoPro camera that was donated to them, they were then able to go to local authorities and say, "Right, here are the images. Uh, you know, we've got the facts. We've put them in front of you," and that meant that they could start, you know, taking on a, lands right, lands, uh, a land rights case. Now, that's not necessarily a perfect answer to that problem because you've obviously then got a legal process to go through. You've got community issues, but I think it's just a great example of people from around the world using technology with the assistance of outside organizations, but really kind of taking responsibility for it themselves to be a part of a larger process uh, that gives people ultimately greater autonomy and, and you know, better social justice. Mm-hmm. And what's key in that story, of course, is that institutions matter. And if there's anything that the aid and development community has learned in the last 20 years, it's that institutions matter.
0: Dive a little bit deeper in that because where I was going, in my brain was going, was... This is an empowering story, right? You've got this tiny community in Guyana that really has no voice. And suddenly yeah. through, you know, a, a small purchase in, in any sort of, you know, on any scale, it's a small purchase and, you know, a donated camera, they suddenly have been given a voice to then, you, as you say, you know, sort of go, you know, at least start the process and go into the system. But then, you know, you're saying institutions are important. So you've just described the DIY culture of of this small group of people, but you're saying institutions are important. So, you know, square that, or what, how are they say that? You know, round that circle for me, or square that circle for me.
1: So. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make there is it's not an either-or proposition. There's this idea, mm. I think, that comes out of Silicon Valley, which I think is very dangerous, which is that technology is the solution to all our problems.
0: Right. Mm.
1: And as much as I love the innovation that's coming out of Silicon Valley, and as I love as, I'm, as much as I love that sort of technologist's mindset, I think that it's very dangerous to say, right, Technology is just going to solve everything. I think where it's really powerful is where you take a technology, for example, like drone technology or, you know, the flip side of that, you just take mobile money. And, you know, the drone story was one that affected 9,000 people in a small forest community. But then you take the advent of mobile money and you're talking about 700 million people gaining access to finance in mm-hmm. the last four years. Mm-hmm. So, I had both of those stories. What matters with both of them is that they are embedded into a wider institutional framework. You're talking about governance frameworks which are very different in Kenya, which has Impesa, compared to Guyana, which might have a totally different kind of governance system, or where the court system is, you know, impenetrable for whatever reason. And so, I think where technology becomes really powerful is when you say, "Here is a new technology. Here is a new innovative way of doing something." But what we do is we take that and we then still recognise that it is embedded in a larger legislative process or it's embedded in a larger governance framework and we work with that to actually try and make change. So I think you kind of both are, you have to have both sides effectively. That's why aid and development is so powerful because if you can get technology into the hands of aid and development specialists who understand governance almost better than anyone, then you're really talking about big changes.
0: Mm. Tell me about the flip side of that coin, which is the DIY culture that you've essentially we had this small group of people in Guyana who said, hey, we can figure this out on our own, you know, rubber bands and matchsticks, as you said. In your experience that you've been doing for the last two or three years, how important is that to continuing to move forward these explosions and in innovation or even just keeping yourself a part of this this stream of growth and, and innovation that we're seeing uh, across the planet? Do we all have to become garage warriors i'm here in bangkok you know yesterday i took my son to uh, what's called a mini maker fair here yeah and for lack of a, a better description i mean you know we went to one of the giant malls here and they had a huge tent area set up and there were you know probably let's say 50 to, to 100 booths of both uh, students and and you know professionals who had created something you know a lot of them were robotics or or the uh, 3d printer kind of things or these kinds of things but but massively popular right there were thousands of people at this thing and it just sort of makes you sort of scratch your head and say wow is this a, one of those okay you know it used to be that you had to go get a bachelor's degree but now it's like wait you have to you also have to be able to break you know build things
1: yeah, sure. That sort of hacker mindset. When I say hacker, I mean hacker in the original sense of the word, which is, mm-hmm. um, do you remember the TV show MacGyver?
0: Oh, do I remember Did MacGyver? Could, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't know MacGyver? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so so MacGy- MacGyver is the original hacker, right? The original meaning of the word hack meant to build something using a bunch of components and parts that weren't originally intended for that purpose. That's what hack actually means. Hmm. So, you so have you hack we,
0: them apart, you hack them together. I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, you so you can hack together an engine, or you right. can, uh, you know, you can hack together a drone. You know, so when we talk about hackers, which is like the hoodie-wearing kind of people who take down the government, that's not actually the original meaning of the word hacker. And if anyone has spent more than a week in the aid and development sector, they will know that human beings, I think, tend to be excellent hackers when they need to be. So I think that that hacker mentality isn't something that – you know, it's not necessarily about saying I know how to build a robot or I can code a piece of artificial intelligence software that um, allows me to sort of overcome parking tickets. I think it's just a mentality that says, okay, how can we achieve an outcome using methods or tools or different parts – in ways that haven't been done before. And that's kind of an innovation-led mindset. You're saying, we've got an outcome we want to achieve. We're just going to try to use it or, or do it in, in a way that hasn't been done before. And we've got a whole bunch of new tools now as well.
0: Mm, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's a problem-solving mindset, right? That yeah. Kind of a problem, and be, I'm empowered to solve that problem, essentially.
1: But also that, that, that the hacker mindset, remember, has no respect for authority. It right. says, I think that there are better and new ways of doing things in the 21st century. And the way that I actually operate is a testament to that belief like I, I actually mean what i say when i do that so we're not necessarily going to throw out all the old ways of doing things but we're also going to look at some new ways of doing it as well mm. and remember that 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 doesn't have to be as i said it doesn't have to be about actually building physical things one of my favorite stories is the sort of delivery of whatsapp into india 300 million people in india now have whatsapp on their phones and you've got someone like a sort of an Indian street food vendor, um, who now has WhatsApp on his phone. So he is taking pictures of his freshly made Pani Puri every morning, and then sending it up to WhatsApp groups with hundreds of his customers on it, because he's got all of their numbers. So that means that he's got free marketing for the cost of $1 a year. Mm-hmm. And that means that every morning, hundreds of his customers get a picture of his freshly made Pani Puri. And that means that they all come down to his stall to kind of, you know, uh, buy the food. And that means that an Indian street food vendor has got far more reach and is able to, you know, sort of lift themselves out of poverty a lot, a lot more easier and a lot more quickly than they used to be able to. That's what the hacker mindset, it's just, but they're not necessarily building robots. They're just using a new tool like WhatsApp to achieve an outcome.
0: Mm, that's a great story. Have you found or do you see a formula for these hacker solutions or these things becoming a standard practice right you rightfully put you know put on the table that aid and development we are a system of institutions right we, we are the big giant uh, gears of the un and and governments and and whatnot and so these giant bureaucratic systems they they rely upon things that they can say look let's codify it let's put it into a process so that we all know how to use it mm. is there a way or, or have you seen a formula or have you witnessed something like your example of using whatsapp in, in india becoming a standard op or it's it's you know five years ago nobody could have imagined it but now it's like hey everybody does it
1: yeah i think that the, the the answer to this question is that uh when you're talking about the word innovation it doesn't necessarily mean a drone or bringing virtual reality headsets into the office or making sure that everyone is using a messaging tool. Uh, I think innovation can actually be the way that you organize yourself as a large, traditionally bureaucratic, traditionally hierarchical, top-down organization, which I think characterizes a lot of the big aid and development organizations. And I say that as someone who's worked in the aid and development field before. I've spent time in the field in Zambia and Mozambique. Uh, I, you know, I, I've seen this stuff and how it works firsthand hand. And probably my favorite story of an organization that has kind of started to move into the future is the International Rescue Committee, who which is run by David Miliband at the moment. And David Miliband was actually I actually met him when I was uh, at the LSE. You know, I met him and his brother once or twice. I think what he's done with the IRC is is, is an amazing story. Um, he sort of came in there as someone who traditionally, you know, hadn't come from the aid and development sector and really had a fresh look at everything at the way it was working. What he did was institute a number of practices in the IRC. So, for example, he put some mechanisms in place to allow the voices of junior staffers to be heard a lot more. You know, if they had ideas, he created some sort of channels for those ideas to actually be heard and taken seriously. Mm. Uh, he, he improved messaging um, in, the, in the organization to sort of try and break down a lot of those traditional silos that you please, see.
0: Please tell me IRC is using Slack.
1: <laughs> I don't actually like know
0: that. if they're using Slack, <laughs> but...
1: Uh, I don't actually know if that's what the solution that they use. So, but, you know, for any of... Talk about like one thing that you can do as an organization that can almost instantly change the way that you operate. I don't know how many aid and development organizations are using Slack, but I'm willing to bet it's very few.
0: Sure, just democratizing communication in that way, right? Making it accessible and available and something where people can jump onto streams, jump off of streams, these kinds of things. That's a, it's a game changer and it's relatively painless to implement, right?
1: Yeah. But the most important thing that I think uh, Miliband did with the the IRC was it was just bringing in a bit of a culture change to sort of say, all right, what do we want to achieve? Um, We are actually ambivalent about the way that we achieve that. Uh, And I think, you know, we're going to move away from a very process driven traditional organization to just saying, this is what we want to achieve are there different ways of doing that? We're willing to kind of try and experiment. We're willing to actually accept a bit of failure every now and again, although of course, when you're talking about people's lives, that's a very difficult sell. But I think what he did was he made the case of saying, if we are going to be a successful advocate for refugees and vulnerable people around the world, we cannot afford to stay stuck in the old paradigms. We cannot afford to still be a very top-down, very hierarchical organization. We have to change regardless of what happens. And I think, just asking that question around and bringing in that kind of mindset—just if you can just do that—that that could make a huge change.
0: Mm. Do you have any insights or any unique ideas for how to fund? These types of new ideas that you just described, for instance, the IRC, right? It's it it is contract and donor driven just as much as any other aid organization, unless they've changed their business model in a way that I'm not aware of. Uh, well, they they have. Okay, well, that's great. So th- I'd love to hear about that. So you know, tell us about you know, what are some of the disruptions you've seen about how to you know how to raise funds or how to how to bring money in in unique ways.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I don't like. I don't want to get too much into the funding of the IRC because I actually probably don't have enough information, and I'm sure I'm going to say something that turns out to be <laughs> factually entirely incorrect, and then and then and then and then and then everything that I've said is uh, invalidated, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do know um, they have picked up a lot more um, funding from the private sector, and mm. I think that's very interesting in the sense that a lot of big. Companies now are looking to be more purpose-driven and are looking to have more of a social impact, but that's that's a side conversation. Uh, in, in terms of funding models, what's fascinating about the digital explosion uh, and the fact that we are now living in a world where more than 3.5 billion people are now connected to the internet is that we're also starting to move into a world where we're going to start seeing the idea of crowdfunding and micropayments becoming increasingly prevalent. And my favorite example of this from where we're standing is a an organization called Patreon. And the way that Patreon works is it's it was created by the creative sector. Uh, and what they do is is they say, right, I am a creative, I'm an artist or a writer, or you know, I'm a, a DIY builder or I'm, you know, I, I produce content, creative content. And then what they do is people can come and say, I will donate $2 a month for you to practice your art or for you to continue your work. I'll donate $10 a month or I'll donate $100 a month. And then depending on what level you donate at, that person then receives uh, you know a number of benefits. So for example, maybe they get a picture before anyone else gets it, or maybe they get a special letter sent to them mm-hmm. once a month. So it's similar to crowdfunding, but what's so interesting about it is that it's an ongoing donation to actually allow that person or that organization to continue doing what it's doing. And what I love so much about that is that they're not necessarily paying for the product anymore, or they're not necessarily paying... The, let's say it was an aid organisation, you're not paying for the aid organisation to run a pilot project or to uh, roll out a particular initiative. You're actually paying for the ongoing sort of operations of that, that organisation or that individual because you really believe in what they're doing. And I think that allows, you know, the idea of connecting with individuals who believe in your, your cause or, or your project um, is a huge thing. And, and I know that, you know, the charity sector has done that for many, many years. But there are a bunch of new tools now which allow you to say, I'm going to donate $1 a month or I'm going to donate $10 a month. And then I'm going to see the proceeds of that actually come out and and be delivered to me individually. And so I think looking into those kinds of crowdfunding models, those um, online revenue uh, generating models is a big deal going forward.
0: love it. Thanks. So the, the last two questions I have are two questions I ask every yes here in this series on innovation. And the first one is you are a creative agency in, in lots of ways. You you put a lot of information out there. You repackage it. But who do you pay attention to? Are there particular blogs, Twitter feeds, magazines, newspapers that you read that um, you think would be important for other people to pay attention to?
1: Right, I'm going to answer this question in, in a slightly strange way. <laughs> awesome. I'm a huge fan of email newsletters.
0: Nobody likes email, man. I
1: know, everyone hates email, right? But the reason everyone hates email is because all the aid organizations have been doing email newsletters, you know, in that like really old-fashioned way where you have the big pictures and it's like this blurb of just boring stuff and you're just like, I don't even care about half of the stuff in this newsletter. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting, in the last few years, we've seen the revival of the email newsletter as an art form. And there are a bunch of people that are doing this extremely well. And what they do is they deliver the content in a really short, sharp, punchy way. There's far fewer images, so it's it's mostly text-based, and the idea there is you're linking to other interesting sources or other interesting articles, so you're not sitting there and saying, we're going to use this email as a way to push out all our own content. You're saying, we're going to use this email newsletter as a way to curate content that we think might be of interest to people who have similar interests to us, and what you do is that means that you establish yourself as a thought leader or as someone who's, whose opinion actually matters in that space, so I'll give you a few examples of newsletters that I really enjoy. One is called Social Capital or Social. I think they've got a newsletter called Snippets. Uh, There's another great guy called Benedict Evans, um, and he's got an amazing newsletter on mobile technologies, some really great statistics that comes out once a week on the digital revolution, um, how mobile technologies are exploding around the world. He is the go to guy for anything to do with mobile. You know, there's a newsletter I love called Global Voices, which just has a bunch of it has three or four stories once a week about. Stories from parts of the world that you don't normally hear from. For example, you know, a news story from Ethiopia, which is a country that has more than 90 million people, but I don't ever hear any news about Ethiopia. Like, why is there no news from Ethiopia? Why is there no news from Latin America? How the hell do I get that? Yeah, anyway, it's another side story. Another great newsletter called Recommendo, R-E-C-O-M-N-D-O. Um, and they just have six tips every week for... Sort of, if you're a person who has a very international kind of lifestyle and you move around the world quite a lot, these people just uh, give you a few interesting tips or resources that, that really helps you. The list kind of goes on, and if you subscribe to our, our newsletter, we always recommend one newsletter um, every fortnight, uh, which we think is really interesting. And I think a lot of these newsletters uh, are really great ways of getting information that matters. And and you're starting to see a revival there.
0: Last question for you is is there one particular innovation or one particular shiny new object or process that you've seen specific to the, you know, aid and development business that you, you know, it's not getting any press or you think it's an up and comer that you'd love to get a shout out to an organization or or thing?
1: So my favorite organization, my new favorite new organization is an organization called BanQ. B-A-N-Q-U. Okay. And it's, Created by a bunch of uh, young aid professionals, you know, they've been in the sector for a while, they've been looking around going, well, this is bullshit. We can do better than this. (laughs) We can do better than this. Yeah. Yeah. So what they've done is they've created a really interesting technology um, which relies on blockchain technologies. And and blockchain, I don't want to get technical, blockchain, the the way to think about blockchain is that it's kind of like email for sort of anything to do that's a contract. So if you think about, for example, like email for money, in the old days... Uh, with email, you had to to send a message to someone. You had to go out to the post office to send uh, somebody else a message. But then email came along it meant you could send a message directly to somebody. And blockchain is very similar to that in the sense that it allows you to engage in a contract with someone, whether it's transferring money or, um, you know, passing a legal will, in a way that doesn't need a third party as a guarantor. And what they're doing is they're creating economic identities on the blockchain. So they're saying this is your economic identity to a person in Somalia or in Myanmar, and they're saying that economic identity lives on a, on the blockchain on a cloud-based system, which means that it's tamper-proof, which means that nobody can come along and mess around with it. Nobody can, you know, say that that economic identity doesn't exist. It's not it means your economic identity isn't tied up with the government. Um, it exists separate to that. And that means that you can then transfer money to that person or you can um, vest a legal, uh, a land rights case in that person. And I think what these guys are doing is really fascinating. They're a bunch of really young people. They've got some great ideas and the technology looks super legit. So go check them out. And I think if anyone can donate a bit of money to them, uh, that would be awesome.
0: Gus, this has been a fantastic conversation as, as expected. And uh, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much. It was, uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from AidPreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.